Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and R.J. Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. my friend. Happy New Year. Here we are again, another year of doing these lists. Um, and so grateful that you could join me today to talk a little bit about the top theology books of 2018. Uh, but before we begin, uh, what's new in Todd world? You're calling me from Jersey City. Uh, how is um, how's the reading going? What, what, how is the new year? Tell me, g- give me a little bit of an update here. Uh, new Year's going really well. I'm uh, currently at the right now doing some kind of preparation for the new semester and some research and writing, which means I'm binge watching The Good Place as procrastination. <laughs> I just started the third season. Oh boy. So no, no spoilers, everyone, but what's your, what's your initial, what's your hot take right now? Um, I love it. Uh, I particularly love Chidi, uh, uh, you know, to have someone who's a uh, smart and, uh, unintentionally funny just seems to have a, some real appeal for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you, you relate in other words. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that there's deep wells of uh Chidi's character that we did not suspect in those first, you know, six or seven episodes. So yeah, well, I'm glad to hear you're, you're jiving with the good place. I always feel like the academics out there, I wonder how much they're rolling their eyes at it or how grateful they are because it's doing some of the work, especially for someone like you who's in the humanities and teaching church history and biblical studies and New Testament and systematics, like it's giving people a little bit more of a framework than they might otherwise have. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's butchering it. I actually used it in class because um, last semester I did a religion and pop culture class. And uh, so I had sort of season one, episode one as, as their kind of thing for them to read. And the hilarious thing for me in terms of what the students' response to the, to the show was, was that, you know, this kind of, it was too stringent of a, of a measure of right or wrong. They really pushed back against only the elites got in, you know, couldn't, couldn't we all just go to the medium place? <laughs> and I was like, thanks for being Eleanor people. Like, yeah. <laughs> Isn't there some place in there, like the, the medium place, the, the okay place where that one woman lives, who's just like completely bleh? Uh, in every way. I mean, isn't that what it's called? Yeah. She's like isolated on her own. Oh gosh. I forget her name. She, she shows up like three or four season episodes. Um, okay. Well, that's all well and good. Let's talk about these books because I am so grateful that you do this for us each year. For those of you who don't know, Todd's been helping Mockingbird behind the scenes for eons. Uh, but he's also been writing for us, speaking for us. So Todd, you and I wrote a book, uh, together, uh, or edited a book together about Pixar many, many moons ago. And then um, every year, uh, because you yourself are so ensconced as an yeah. academic a PhD uh, in the world of theology, I plead with you, I beg you to tell us what it is we're missing or where, <laughs> what we should be reading or uh, what we should read again. 
So why don't you just give me an overview kind of of where we are, what uh, 2018 was like for people who read theology. Maybe then segue into your favorite, uh, the one that gets top billing here. Yeah, 2018 was a was a fun year uh, in terms of books. What I found myself is uh, in my reading and what I've done uh, kind of even research-wise is that I find myself being more interested not so much in whether or not something is like agreeable to me, but more that it, is it well-researched? Is it a good book? Mm-hmm. Uh, and do I find it interesting in that way? Um, which has really been fun for me because it's sort of pushed me beyond the kind of safe bounds of what I used to um, cling to. Um, but in that way, so I mean, for me, the most anticipated book was Philip Ziegler's Militant Grace book. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I mean, you, you kind of look on the back of the people who endorse it, and it's kind of a who's who of apocalyptic Pauline theology. Um, and it's and, and it fits the bill. It, it does everything you kind of want in a book. Uh, what particularly caught my eye is literally in chapter one, it's all about Gerhard Ferdi. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, right. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah, and, and I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't think people took Ferdi seriously or Ford, Ford A, or however people pronounce it. Yeah. Uh, and here, I mean, there it is, like justification and apocalyptic is, uh, yeah, the eschatological dr- dramatics of the doctrine of grace. Um, so it's definitely a kind of meaty book. Um, it's, but in that way, uh, it's really fun kind of food for thought, thinking about apocalyptic understanding of grace, as opposed to a kind of more salvation historical uh, framework. Yeah, I mean, we've written a little bit about this on the website before, but when you say apocalyptic, it's worth spelling out to people. We're not talking about uh, the walking dead or the stand. I mean, yeah. uh, can you explain for the sake of the layman um, what it means when, we're talk- when we talk about apocalyptic theology and uh, J. Lewis Martin, who, by the way, Mockingcast listeners should know that he was married to Dorothy Martin, uh, who we speak about very frequently and fondly on the Mocking Cast. In fact, uh, Dorothy, the great therapist and uh, writer herself, she was for many, many years behind the scenes, and she was his editor. But uh, Todd, tell us what it means when you say apocalyptic theology, especially as it relates to grace. Apocalyptic theology owes its beginnings to the uh, second edition of Karl Barth's Romans uh, commentary. Mm. And basically what it's trying to do is it's trying to have an uh, understanding of grace and culture and the church as uh, distinctive vis-a-vis the world, and what it, what um, uh, and what it ends up doing is it has it views Jesus as this kind of explosion, right? Bart is writing post World War World War One, and uh, a lot of the metaphors he uses are kind of explosive uh, metaphors, and it view, views Jesus as this kind of radical incursion into the world of something completely unforeseen and new. Mm. Um, so, so that the uh, proclamation of the church and the grace of God therein and those sacraments and um, everything is always something new. God is in the business of uh, bring, you know, making all things new, so to speak. And, and what that is is um, really furtive for talking about grace because what is grace except the exe- exception to, to how the world runs? Yeah, um, yeah. And so it, it has a lot of cachet in, in sort of scholarly circles because particularly within the Paul, Pauline theology, um, 
the old way of thinking about Paul as this kind of anti-Jewish figure, so to speak, inherited via Luther uh, and others, not just Luther, uh, became untenable. And what happened was Ernst Kaysmann, who was a Paul scholar, um, put forward this apocalyptic Paul reading, which became a new way of kind of understanding Paul, which allowed uh, Pauline scholars to still love Luther, um, while also nevertheless um, reframing Luther as an apocalyptic thought, which Luther was. Luther was an apocalypticist. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, he thought of himself as the, as in between the times, near the end times. He thought of himself uh, ensconced in a kind of cosmic warfare between God and the devil, uh, himself being the uh, kind of focal point uh, to a degree of that. Um, and so, um, so apocalypse. So yeah. So it's a negative evaluation of the world, a, a view of God and grace as in breaking and something radically new into that equation, which creates a new future for the church uh, and a hopefulness. Well. How then would you say that Ziegler, I mean, this is one of the books on there that I haven't personally picked up, despite the incredible William Blake illustration on the cover. What is Ziegler's contribution here? I mean, for those of us who are interested in why he gets such a strong recommendation, who may read his work? Yeah. I mean, part of Ziegler's contribution, in addition to to presenting a very systematic, well, it's twofold. One, uh, systematics uh, as far as apocalyptic, Paul readings haven't been in conversation with one another. Mm. Um, so a lot of systematic theology hasn't been apocalyptic systematic theology. And so Ziegler's c- contribution is first and foremost that. Um, the second thing he does is he tries to, he does try to make the kind of ethical turn of, okay, grace and the world are incompatible with one another. So how then us living in the world still live within the world? Um, does it, we can't retreat from the world. So what does it mean to be responsible kind of living in grace in the world, which is opposed to grace? Uh, and so he, um, yeah. And so th- that's why he finds kind of metaphors of Christ as um, Lord and all of those things as, and us as um, being as kind of followers of that benevolent, gracious Lordship uh, really uh, helpful metaphors for him. Uh, fascinating, fascinating. I mean, this is it's funny. Just the other day, I was I was getting you know an, another piece of helpful feedback about everything we're trying to do with Mockingbird and uh, uh, wanting us to talk more about the now what in terms of not in, not what comes after grace, but how does grace continue to inform and be embodied and striven toward in some kind of. Uh, way that takes into account the supreme resistance it encounters both uh, outside in the world and inside ourselves. So sounds like a great book. Yeah. It sounds like something to um, definitely to put in my little uh, shopping cart. But next <laughs> on there, next on there, let's just, I mean, I want to, I feel like it's, it's worth just taking people through here. We have one of our favorite, you know, celebrity type uh, figures that we talk about all the time, which is uh, Fleming Rutledge had a book that came out this year called Advent, The Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ. And this is on the heels yeah. of her enormous book on the crucifixion, um, which really, um, f- what I can, talking to Fleming herself, but also 
everyone I see that has, has kind of given her real wind beneath her wings and, and, ha- and reached a new audience. I think that book got serious yeah. traction in the world, certainly outside of the Episcopal Church and Anglicanism, even beyond evangelicalism. Uh, but here we have this book, uh, this new one about Advent, and it was excerpted in Christianity Today, and we reviewed it on the site, and we posted some wonderful stuff that she has to say about John the Baptist and how she really reorients um, the, our entire thinking about Advent in a way that's quite beautiful, in a way that invites people who maybe didn't grow up with the, the church calendar in the same way. She invites them into that space. Um, but this is a collection of sermons, not a systematic work like the crucifixion, uh, or at least it's something slightly different than that. So t- tell me about your understanding of the book and why uh, mm-hmm. why put it on this list. Yeah, I have a, actually a fairly unconventional take on on this book, which is to say, yes, it's absolutely a, a collection of sermons, no doubt about it. Right? She's been preaching uh, for a while, uh, and so she's had the opportunity to preach about Advent for, for 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 that time. But I think that put it together, um, it actually creates a work which I think is a, is a little bit of a magic trick. In other words, the readers think that they're reading a book about a season of the year in Advent, right? Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up this book, and so I have some, some kind of tools for my arsenal as a preacher to talk about Advent in this season of Advent. Um, but, the, the, but I actually think it's, it's meant to be more of a systematic work, perhaps implicitly or um, surprisingly to her even, uh, because the first quote that she has in at the very beginning of the book, she has this string of quotes from lots of people who talk about Advent. And the very first one she has is from Karl Barth. And uh, what Barth says is, what other time or season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? And so uh, I think Advent actually, rather than a church season, becomes a kind of controlling metaphor for uh, life in the world in between times. it's, It's like every day is Advent. It's not just a church season. And so you buy this book thinking, I'm going to learn about this church season or find something helpful as I'm entering into this short time of Advent. But by the end of it, you, you realize, oh, I need to, this is about every day. This is you know, about every, every day. day we're caught in between the times and we're looking for a coming future hope and restoration while living in the myriad of complexities of the present. Um, while experiencing grace now uh, in flashes and glimmers, or uh, more so if you're particularly gifted. Uh, but nevertheless, um, yeah, so like every day is Advent. Um, yeah. And, and I, that's why I call this, uh, I think in, in the review, I, I, I call it a work of actual a kind of a treatise. Um, it, it's, it's more than just a collection of sermons. It, it can be that for you if you want. But I think by the end, it's this is this is what life is like, and you know you should read the book every day. I mean, everyone, you're constantly. I think it's it's one of her catchphrases, I guess, and it was even built into our friend Jason Michelli made it into this big uh, devotional series over the past this past Advent. Uh, this Advent begins in the dark, and that um, Advent. Yeah. You know, whenever you're preaching in the beginning of Advent, you're. I'm told, or other people are told, that the initial readings are very dark and apocalyptic. They're not. 
shepherds watching oh, yeah. over their flocks by night. It's it's really dark stuff, and Advent begins in the dark, and you sort of want to say, well, uh, Christianity begins in the dark. Life begins in the dark. This is where, the, where we are addressed. Is It doesn't actually, just because January 1 comes around or Epiphany turns around, we don't actually, maybe we can follow the church calendar in some way that is beyond superficial, but um, this place of Advent, I think pastorally she locates something She's she's hit upon something very deep because I I I've just seen from my own vantage point uh, editing our website the amount of Advent related uh, submissions we got this year I basically had to do a moratorium I said enough about Advent you know it's it's it, it, it is struck <laughs> such a, it, I mean it, it, people wrote beautiful beautiful things because it connected with their actual experience of where they were living it they weren't actually really writing about the season it was only it was an excuse to write about yeah. the dar- the darker uh aspects of their life the waiting the difficulty of being living feeling like you're living in darkness and i know that uh fleming was taken aback by the response to the book god which is partly the response uh the follow-up to the crucifixion but i apparently Erdman's didn't print enough and they they sold out and there was a um, uh, she jokes that it's only huh. going to ever sell for a couple weeks a year, but um, <laughs> you know a lot of people really dug it. And you know, there I think this this past week there was another thing in the Times, the London Times, about how young people don't really like the sort of modern liturgies of uh, mega churches, and they f- always opt for the smells and bells and the liturgical calendar and something more ancient. And we've been hearing that forever, but I've seen it personally <laughs> right. in the popularity of Advent. Not only that, but of Rutledge. And here, uh, the way she talks about John the Baptist and the judgment that's coming and the righteousness being restored and the light, it's not all Advent wreaths. Uh, I got to have dinner with her recently while I was traveling, and uh, it was in the middle of Advent, and I immediately um, asked her where her Christmas tree was as a joke, and she started laughing, which was, uh, she's, she's very with it. But um, the rest of the world, it was nothing but, you know, <laughs> Rudolph and Santa Claus everywhere. But Fleming is practicing what she preaches, and her, her, the, the, her house was decorated uh, only in purple, and with a few little lights, you should, you should be noted. But anyway, um, I'm psyched to see her her profile rising in this whatever, like this huh. third uh, act of her career. It's really inspiring to see. Um, ne- next on the list, though, we have something by a mutual friend of ours, uh, which is Jonathan Linebow, or Jono, as he's known. <laughs> uh, he edited a collection of essays called God's Two Words, Law and Gospel in the Lutheran and Reformed Traditions. And anyone uh, who is aware of, uh, who would even track along with the title, knows that that's a potentially um, uh, fiery or uh, <laughs> difficult, uh, touchy subject, as uh, the ways, the different ways that uh, law and gospel are understood yeah. in Reformed and Lutheran traditions. Um, tell me about your experience of this book. I mean, uh, it is a wonderful book. We got to actually post the entire introduction on. Uh, Mockingbird way back when, and, and you know, I was, so many people read it. I thought to myself, "Gosh, we got to do more straight up theology because he's uh, this is great." So, t- tell us about the book, Todd. Tell us why we should read it. Why should we pick it up? So, I find the book uh, wonderful and interesting for for a couple reasons. Uh, but one is that, like, whenever you talk to reform people, um, I'm not reformed and I'm not Lutheran, so I, I kind of kind of sit in this you know, at the table of their conversations. But whenever you talk to reformed, reformed people and then you turn and talk to uh, Lutheran people, they, they all seem to agree on what the gospel is, right? Uh, but if, you, if they have a couple beers and you sit long enough, you realize that there are really, really deep t- tensions between the two. 
um, that are often just not, you don't, you're not aware of it. You're like, oh, you know, Tim Keller, he's a PCA church uh, pastor. Oh, I, I really like Stephen Paulson. And um, it, it's helpful to kind of unpack the differences between the two for me to find out where I sit, right? I'm neither uh, ecclesially and, and uh, kind of hear both sides of the debate and realize um, what each has to offer, where their differences lie. And um, yeah, and so it's helpful for me in that way, um, which you don't always get, right? You, you read one and then you read the other. And so having the two of them in conversation in that way is just really um, brings about a, lot, a great deal of clarity. Uh, the other thing I really liked about this, uh, this book um, <laughs> is <laughs> they're just so nice to each other. Like, <laughs> that's like, remarkable. I mean, let's face it. Uh, people who are deep in the professional theology world are not known for being terribly nice. I mean, that should be said. I mean, a lot of, you know, a lot of theologians see themselves as bullfighters, right? And they're, and they're out to slay their opponents. These are people who, who, you know, literally feel like they've just come from having coffee together and, and really enjoying each other's company. So they, 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 it's not that they hold back punches, so to speak, but they're not trying to throw punches in the first place. They're, they're, they're there to, to, I'm a Lutheran, and, and let's talk. We're not going to change each other's minds, so to speak, but we're going to, uh, through this dialogue, at least have a starting point so that we can then go on to uh, maybe make better sense of each other. Because, I mean, to be honest, so for example, the L Lutheran and Reformed traditions have long had a, a history of hating each other. Um, the whole uh, view of, a, of Lutherans, um, as I understand it, as uh, sure. being consubstanti consubstantiation, right? Their viewing of uh, Jesus as being uh, consubstantial in the Eucharistic elements. Well, that's a reform slur that was thrown at, uh, at, at Lutherans. So, uh, yeah, so the, it, I just, yeah. it's like ecumenicism in the best sense of the word, right? This isn't like, let's all get along and find some area in which we all can kind of blandly agree with each other, but rather let's unpick and uh, unpack the differences between each other. Um, and in that way, have some real charity between the two. Um, so like Lutherans, um, if you were to sort of, here's the difference, right? Lutherans begin with Christ uh, and the revelation of Jesus. And in that way, they're very, the gospel of John, right? Um we, we have seen God, i.e. Jesus. Um, no one else has seen God. Um, and Reformed are, are much more kind of, uh, what, what's the story, right? Where uh, promise and fulfillment are far more um, uh, kind of significant in how they think about both Scripture as well as God in, in general. Um, and so that, that's a huge starting point difference, which... Um, you wouldn't otherwise know, but it comes really comes across in this book. In this book, I, mean, I think it was um, born yeah. out of an in-person <laughs> symposium, right, in in Birmingham, Alabama, a number of years ago. So I think that maybe there's that spirit of oh, yeah. sitting around the table with people who you actually are enjoying being with, um, maybe bred its way into that as yeah. as well as Doctor Linebaugh, Jono's personal uh, magnanimity. Uh, he's just a very magnanimous individual and um, uh, in addition to being an <laughs> extremely uh, sophisticated scholar. So I'm grateful that that book exists because people always, um, uh, this yeah. is a place where people get into really um, 
a lot of real you know, ideological uh, bombs get thrown and people become objectified in ways that Christians, of course, are not immune to in any respect. So I'm glad John O put this out there. It's also that introduction is just deeply oh, yeah. clarifying and it, fascinating in the fact that, you know, there by self-understanding the time of the Reformation, uh, the Lutheran Lutheran reforms basically thought that they were more in agreement on the distinction between the law and the gospel than they were uh, in disagreement, and that that disagreement, the, the sort of tensions, the difference, the difference that they mean the different things with the same words, that has sort of been a more of a byproduct of history, which was maybe even yeah. seen as irrelevant, and now it's kind of come to be relevant again. Anyway, I'm so glad to be able to recommend that to people. But the, the next one, yeah. The Apostles' Creed, A Guide to the Ancient Catechism by Ben Myers. It's just yeah. It was the first um, release uh, from uh, Lexham Press, which I believe is from uh, Australia. Is that right? Um, yeah, that's that's where uh, uh, Myers is from. Well, we we were sent this book to review, and it's just it looks so good, and it's small, and it's a hardback. And anyone who knows Ben Myers from Twitter, he's one of the best. Uh, he somehow manages to be a bright light in that, and and a very funny, winsome hilarious, uh, gracious presence in what is what I'm more and more believed to be um, a, a by default, uh, uh, you know, basically evil medium of communication. Um, <clears throat> he, he is he's not only survived, but thrives so much <laughs> that he has written this short uh, guide to the Apostles' Creed, which we've, you know, it's really geared towards a more popular audience. It's not necessarily a strict academic theology book. However, it does have so much meat on its bone, so much packed into a small thing that I think it fits here better than it would as like a larger trade release. But tell us, because you, you, you sort of go into it and you say that, okay, uh, after describing it, maybe this was my favorite book of 2018. Um, Tell us what why you like it. We we were on the site at the time, by the way. I recommend yeah. people read what Kendall had to say. But Todd, tell us more. I uh, I say that uh, yeah, it's my favorite book because every time I page through it, right, it's a short book. Um, there's so many little small little reflections, is what they are. But you know, you you just page your way through any one given page, and you and I'm just struck by what is. Um, an unexpected and new kind of turn of phrase that I, that I wouldn't otherwise, that, that just kind of grabs me, you know? Um, we talk about kind of Thornton Wilder and the, and the need for new and persuasive words. Uh, th- this, this guy has it, you know? Whatever that it is, he does it. Um, I mean, like, yeah. just in the introduction, I literally open up the book, and it says, the truest and most important things we can ever say are not individual words, but communal words. Most of the words of my life are trivial and fleeting. They fall from my lips and drift away like dead leaves. But in the creed, I am invited to say true words. I mean, my, the, my, the, my words fall from my lips and drift away like dead leaves. I mean, I mean the book is full of those kinds of things. Um, so, that, so that's one of the things I love about the book. Um, the other is just how um, he's very well read and uh, kind of, what we'd call the church fathers in a, in a way which yeah. I am not. Right. And so it's, it's very kind of cool for me as a non-specialist to kind of read a book uh, uh, with all of these quotes from all of these luminaries whose names you hear every now and then uh, basically saying the same thing about, the, not the same thing, but 
it gives this kind of force of this is what the church thinks, and we and the church has thought this for a very long time. And here are some really smart people who have who have actually tro- trod this path before. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah. So, and it, and it does so in a way that's like not pretentious. Um, <laughs> I say that because people who are church fathers nuts um, tend to have this kind of air of like the, the church fathers are brilliant and we're idiots. Um, yeah. <laughs> I uh, I can't say I I, I don't uh, recognize that attitude sometimes. Yeah, in people. Um, but hey, some of my best friends are church fathers or patristic scholars. <laughs> um, uh, Kendall says he says it's it's full of scripture and tradition, but eager to respond to contemporary anxieties about the relevance yeah. of the two. And and the passages I've read, I find that comes across loud and clear. Again, this is the this is the closest any of the books on this list come to what I would say is to kind of a mm-hmm. give to anyone book. But the Creed, which is, you know, so many churches do uh, teaching series on the Apostles' Creed. So many uh, um, adult education forums and, and, and websites even try to really dig into the tradition in a way that uh, is well-intentioned, but perhaps uh, ends up driving people further away oh, from yeah. their lives than uh, into it. And I think he's gotten um, whatever it is the gift for communication that that respects the tradition, draws upon it, while also addressing people who are actually would actually read the book um, and not just blurb it, um, I think is uh, really something to be applauded here. Uh, one way to put it would be, uh, you know, we all say the, the creed every week, uh, and we don't think of that as proclamation, right? It's not preaching. But you read this book and you realize every single line of this, when done well, actually preaches. It has something to say uh, to the everyday kind of um, muck of of life in a a, a word of comfort. Um, The creed isn't just a creed, it's gospel. Um, And I I mean, even right down to, you know, uh, suffered under under Pontius Pilate, uh, which is the the most obscure line ever in the creed. And Myers has really beautiful things about what that means for Christian faith and history and uh, all of those kinds of dynamics and what it means for us to live in time. So, and he uh, he avoids you know making some clumsy reference to uh, Apollo Creed <laughs> and the Creed movies that are out <laughs> at the moment, um, which are of equal and uh, maybe not equal importance, but all of some sort of <laughs> importance. But let's move on to the next is a very familiar suspect in the mocking sphere, which is uh, Stephen Paulson, who spoke at our recent conference in Oklahoma City and gave an incredible talk. Uh, and he wasn't actually talking about this book that he's just written, he, though I've heard him speak about it, and it's a fascinating, kind of challenging book to me personally, to be honest with you. But uh, it's, it's in their, um, their uh, what's it, Luther Study Series. What's it called? It's, it's, it's Fortress Lu- Press. The, well, um, Lutheran uh, Quarterly Books. Yeah, Lutheran Quarterly Books. It's uh, Luther's Outlaw God, Volume 1, Hiddenness, Evil, and Predestination. Um, Stephen, I love you to death, but that's not a remarkable <laughs> title. I mean, the word outlaw is good, and that conjures up some cool things. But he, he's yeah. really diving into some difficult territory, stuff that I kind of find to be Lutheran with a capital L, uh, which it's not as though it's billing itself as anything other than that, but it, it's tough uh, material. It's, it's fascinating, the distinction between the hidden and preached God as the basis for the proper distinction between law and gospel. Uh, where were you on this book? I, I noticed that you mentioned here one little reservation about being yeah. slightly dis, uh, disappointed 
but ultimately grateful for him to being the 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 single figure who comes closest to embodying the uh, Martin Luther as a, both as a, a personality and as a human being. <laughs> yeah. So this is um, this is a book which is uh, much anticipated. I, I, I try to read everything Paulson publishes, uh, but. Paulson's big point, which I think is really significant today, is he's all he's driving at the the kind of theodicy question: uh, why why is there suffering in the world? Why is there evil in the world? Why why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, those kind of classic moral theological conundrums. And what he's responding to is a way of presenting who God is that gets him off kind of off the charges of. God being evil. Uh, how can God allow suffering in the world? Well, it's not really God, it's human free will. Or how can allow God allow suffering in the world? It's not really God, it's, uh, it's the devil. Or uh, ways of excusing God for not for, for being God, in, in, in sort of Paulson's view. Um, and so in that way, the book is, is successful, right? It, it, uh, Luther's deus es absconditus, or however it's pronounced, uh, is a really help, is a really um, viable and helpful anecdote to that kind of thinking. In other words, um, don't begin with a notion of God which excuses God from uh, from from whatever thing you want to excuse God from. Uh, God is God, and we are not. And this is the, uh, and the whole yeah. point of those kinds of quandaries is to push you to who God really is. When you're groping in the dark. For the for this hidden God, driven by these the questions of the question of suffering, the point is to get to who God really is, namely the God of Jesus Christ and grace and the resurrection of the dead and the future hope we have uh, in Him. Um, that's who God is. So that whenever you're plagued by these um, kind of quandaries and and uh, doubts and and all those sorts of kind of darkness. Um, don't excuse God to, to make yourself feel better. Uh, look for who God really is in Christ. Um, yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's no, no one does it better than, than he, um, someone said, I think Bono sang that song off of how to build an atomic <laughs> bomb is the stop helping God across the street, like a little old lady. Um, Meaning, stop, stop making excuses for God. If God is God, uh, allow things to stand. And uh, here you have Paulson, who he, he his great gift is like that of his hero, is pushing, I think, people to, um, yeah, to the extreme, to uh, kind of taking it as far as it'll go, and in and almost uh, plumbing the insights and breakthroughs that are there to be had. Um, Though it, it sort of stands outside of the a lot of the the rest of what you're talking about, I think you mentioned it. Sort of, it doesn't. It's not. He's not interested in commenting on yeah. contemporary theological developments. He's really interested in understanding what Luther means when he talks about the hiddenness of God. And uh, let's just allow a thing to be what it is, which is that's what he's doing. And there's volume two coming coming down the pike. Um, yeah, I, like uh, myself, I really wanted him to comment on uh, Eberhard Jungle, <laughs> which. Who is a late 20th century um, Lutheran theologian for whom the hidden reveal God is actually fairly significant. He wrote a whole book about it, and uh, Paulson knew Jungle, and I and I was really interested in hearing a kind of 
what does Steven Paulson think about Eberhard Jungel? And I never really got that. So, uh, <laughs> that's right. Well, may- maybe volume two. Maybe volume two, Todd. We can only hope. Um, sure. But speaking of, I mean, the next, let, let's go, we got to sort of move quickly through these next ones, but uh, the, the next <laughs> one you snuck in because you're a sly devil of a human being, um, which is by Catherine Tanner, which actually comes out this week. It comes out tomorrow. It'll be out for people to buy now. Christianity and the New Spirit of Capitalism. I know that my brother Simeon was extremely excited. I think he's already read part of this. Um, and what sounds maybe fashionable in uh, Dr. Tanner's hands is, I guess, a deeply important and fascinating treatise on um, you know Christianity and capitalism. I always remember that that interview recently with Father John Misty, the indie um, provocateur who was taken back to his, he grew up a very hardcore evangelical and was taken back to his college and was was just commenting offhand about he's, one of the things um, that concerns him most is about his upbringing or about the sort of Christianity that he was exposed to as a kid was just, it, it, it jives a little too neatly with late period capitalism and that's, a, a problem when you consider that its roots are not that. Um, but have you read the book, Todd, or what made you want to put it on here? Because I haven't read it. It's not even out. Yeah. Uh, so minor confession. Uh, I do not have the physical copy of the book in hand. Uh, I did certainly listen to all of the lectures upon which the book is based. And so, uh, yes, that is how I was able to comment uh, about the book without it actually having ah. been yet released. Uh that and Google Books is really good to, you know, when you purchase the book, it's giving you previews. Um, but anyway, uh, what I love about the book is um, no compartmentalization, right? Um, I think sort of the, the system of uh, the economic system in which we live is really a, a kind of given uh, right now, right? Um, and one of the, so one of the interesting things, John, John Barclay who's a Paul scholar, uh, said to me once is he said, you know, everyone is trying to think about what life looks like outside of capitalism. And we're having a really tough time doing so. Um, and so, uh, so this is an attempt, uh, what if we don't take capitalism as given and we, and we kind of examine it from the standpoint of Christian values without, sort of bracketing off a whole aspect of our life and just saying that's how it is because that's what economists tell us is the best way of doing things, then then we're, we're open up to a whole new vista of maybe different practice, certainly different ways of thinking about ourselves. Um, so like, for example, in the book, one of the um, principles of capitalism is scarcity, right? Um, there's only so many goods to go around. You can only buy so much uh supply and demand, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I'm not an economist, so I'm sort of taking her word for it. Uh, but scarcity is re- repugnant to the economy of grace, right? It has nothing to do with, grace is all about abundance and the abundance of gift uh, given to people who don't deserve it. Uh, so how do we think about economists, uh, economics, uh, yeah. which is not uh, economics of scarcity, but maybe in economics of grace. Um, and so I love that kind of thought experiment, so to speak, because it, uh, it, it really changes how you view uh, the world that we live in and, and uh, uh, yeah, in a, in a helpful way. Yeah, I mean, 
and that's a, that's certainly something where uh, we often get into hot water. I, I think of like the, the back half of Grace in Practice, but also just what the, the Mockingbird's been doing for the last ten years is is kind of uh, breaking down some of the walls uh, that some of which maybe should be there, some of which shouldn't. But trying to uh, I don't know decompartmentalize our understanding of grace. Like, what if this were true? You know, w- would it really just be something we thought about on Sundays? Wouldn't it affect our parenting? Wouldn't it affect the way that we, uh, you know, treat yeah. our spouse? Wouldn't it affect the music we kind of listen to? And that's, uh, once you get into that realm, it's you're taking it out of the realm of the first century, you're taking it out of the realm of the text, and yeah. people, of course, are going to have very strong opinions because you're going to get close to the bone and you're going to touch on all of their sacred, sacred cows. And I'm sure that... Uh, this one does that. It sounds like the next one does it too. Yet another another year, as you joke, another uh, um, reappraisal of Paul that kind of um, you know gets to get people talking almost to get people there's they're in a lather uh, from Douglas Campbell, Paul on Apostles' Journey, and then you yeah. finish with the Bible in a disenchanted age, the enduring possibility of Christian faith, which to me sounds like it's referencing Charles Taylor, and I, I've been reading some. Uh, pushback about enchantment, but I mean, maybe give it, give us a couple sentences about both of those books, and then we'll we'll wrap it up here for folks who are who want to actually get to reading the books. Okay, so uh, I, I feel like in with my Campbell review, I give enough disclaimers about some of his other works, uh, which which is to say, I didn't expect to like this book, but I loved it, um, namely because he um, he's really pastoral and really. Um, Thinking of presenting a Paul who is uh, loves people, a Paul who is brilliant, a Paul who is uh, cares deeply about forming churches that are healthy, um, and, and it but it preaches honestly. Um, it doesn't always preach in ways that are kind of mockingbird approved, um, but hey, here's a Paul legit Paul scholar who's actually doing something which feels devotional. It's it's very counterintuitive in that way, or very unexpected. Um, and then the the other book, the Moberly book, uh, is is great because well, uh, people like to appeal to to scripture um, for the for the basis of what they think and believe about God, which is an admirable and noble and wonderful thing to do. Um, I do it myself, but you know. Oftentimes, how scripture is read isn't always really well examined. I mean, we're, we're, we never really, sometimes, often, don't get past uh, the type of Bible studies that we were taught when we were in high school or college or uh, whatever. And um, here is a book which sort of tries to unpick or undo uh, what the Enlightenment has done to how we read scripture. Um, I mean, the Enlightenment has. has basically says something about the nature of truth as, as being kind of this um, objective one-to-one thing. Um, and when we read scripture, we, we, we tend to have this kind of scripture as a rule book view of it um, with a kind of one-to-one correspondence between scripture and the life that we live now. And it, it's really far more complex than that. And anyone who tells you otherwise is... Um, ignorant or lying um, <laughs> or they're selling you something or, or selling uh, you something and or, so or selling you something uh, possibly a bible study yeah. series or a devotional i mean so that's one side of the argument the, but the but the other side to which uh this book is really aimed is at skeptics um he's really aimed at your kind of 
um, 20th century modernist skeptics of scripture who think that because it's, uh, you know, hey, we found some problems with it or whatever, um, it's all gone. It's all discredited. Um, you know, Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. Ha 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 ha. Like it's all, it's all false. Um, he's kind of, he's kind of aiming. He's really trying to aim at that. Um, you know, what the world is very, uh, disenchanted, very skeptical about Christian faith, very skeptical about the claims of scripture. And, and Moberly is an, is a really great guide towards kind of, uh, uh, beyond that, that viewpoint without kind of getting into, um, the, the realm of apologetics, which I find to be so um, unconvincing, put it that way. Mm. So, Wow. Todd, thank you uh, for this. Let me uh, mention two more things to you. Uh, you're very kind. Uh, I didn't actually ask you to uh, um, put our the books that we've published this year, but Capon's Exit 36, which is this sort of strange novel uh, <laughs> of theological speculation, autobiographical uh, horror. Um, and it's, it's wonderful. I'm glad you put that in there. I will note to people who've actually bought it and read it on Amazon, one person has one verified review, and it's not a positive review. So if you did <laughs> buy it and you do have, uh, if you, uh, you know, Amazon can spot a, uh, a plant from a mile away in terms of if, uh, if I try to write something or someone in the office, if you read it and you loved it and you saw that the whole point was to make you uncomfortable um, and make you laugh a little bit, uh, do write a review. Uh, for for Cape and Sex 36, uh, rescue us from the doldrums of the one star. Uh, and then uh, Larry Parsley's wonderful short guys for Meditations on Mark, which again is, you know, one of the things I love about these lists every year. And although uh, we do recommend a lot of quote-unquote Mockingbird approved, whatever that means, we're, we're not really trying to color it within the lines. I mean, we need to be exposed to things that are fresh and exciting and inspiring, and that does not mean staying always within our comfort zones or simply with that which we already believe. So I'm glad that we get you to bring these things to our attention. I think it's a great picture of how large, in fact, our contributorship is as well. Um, Larry is uh, the least, if you met him, he's extremely smart. He's a very literary and deeply kind person, but he's not doctrinaire in a negative sense, meaning he's not here to try to convince you of a particular uh, point of view. He's really trying to bring to bear some comfort in the word of the gospel. So I think that's a really important thing to mention. Uh, but you're smiling at me, Todd? Yeah, um, I'm just smiling because I'm re- remembering what I did with the book when I first got it, uh, which is that I've written on Mark myself uh, as a kind of New Testament scholar, and I was like, ha, let's see how this guy handles this passage, <laughs> which is terrible, by the way. <laughs> uh, he passed your test? He did. He did. It was great. I was like, oh, good. You read the parable within its framework and context of, of the narrative. Good job. Uh, and and then I read on and I was like, oh, geez, this guy like has a real pastoral heart. And uh, I, I say, well I, well, I say cut me to the heart. I mean, I, the thing that I said about um, about the Myers book, that things just kind of are you read them and they arrest you for a second is, is exactly what the, the Mark book does for me. Um, you're not, it's grace in the most unexpected places. Oh, well, that's, that's uh, so encouraging to hear. I'll, I'll pass it on to Larry. Larry, if you're listening, you, maybe you just heard it yourself, but, um, this is what we're doing. We're not trying to regurgitate anything. We're trying to really find uh, the ways in which God is speaking in uh, unexpected, uh, 
ways and see if we can maybe be a vehicle or a conduit or whatever. Um, you know, on the uh, I should also mention that on the on my sort of end of the year consuming 2018 post, I I put a couple of sort of the more trade like I guess or poppy religious uh, books that impacted me personally this year, and I had to put at the top of that list Kate Bowler's um, yeah. uh, amazing. Um, uh, book about her cancer and um, everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved, which she was written about in the New York Times. And it's just a wonderful uh, book in every respect. It's sort of a give to anyone, especially those who are um, constantly trying to let God off the hook for various things. Um, but it's gut level. And then uh, Chad Bird's Your God is Too Glorious, which is Chad is, again, another one of these people that's just gifted with words and um, a has been through the crucible of suffering in his own life. And so he kind of speaks from beyond the grave a little bit. And I loved that book. And then also 1517 put out a new uh, translation of, of uh, the Heidelberg Disputation. It's just called The Theology of the Cross, but it's got a bunch of meditations in there, which I found personally uh, very uh, useful and uh, edifying. So, Todd, uh, let's close with one last thing. What do you, what, what, what do we, uh, theologians or th- theological readers? What do we have to look forward to in 2019? Uh, give us your either your predictions, your hopes, your, uh, your what you're excited about, what you're dreading, etc. Well, I hear there's a fantastic author who's uh, publishing a book called Seculosity. <laughs> ah, that was a softball. I actually didn't think. <laughs> Thank you. Whether or not people will call it theological will be a different scenario, but thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's coming out April 2nd. No, I, literally, that is the only book on my pre-order list right now. So uh, so kudos to you. Um, the um, Yeah. So, so the, okay. I'm going to say that. So I'm a big John Barclay fan. Mm-hmm. I did my PhD at Durham and... Uh, and every year for the last two years, I've been looking forward to John Barclay publishing a, po- a popular level Paul book in the same vein as um, Miroslav Volf, uh, Free of Charge. And uh, every year he, he doesn't do it. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. He's having some trouble writing the book. And so I hope that, fingers crossed, this is the year. Uh, but yeah. Well, that's, that's exciting. That's something to look forward to. Every time you write about Barclay... Um, it, it always gets my blood pumping, and it, I also hope that, uh, selfishly that my brother Simeon um, gets his uh, book that he's under contract for uh, on the sort of Holy Spirit. I really cannot wait for that book oh, to yeah. appear. I think it'll be pers- personally very helpful, um, even if he is a human being, leaves a lot to be desired. Um, as a theologian, he's really as, uh, as wonderful as they come. I'm just kidding, Sim. <laughs> People who know know me know that I I love both sides. Of um, well, I'm sure it's going to snap our fingers, and we'll be talking again next year. I hope. But um, Todd, thanks for being with us, and um, uh, yeah, Godspeed. Happy New Year, my friend. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, and uh, yes, for sure next year. All right, my friend. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time.
Praise the Lord. 